Welcome to the State of Research podcast, brought to you by the Office of the Vice President for Research at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Mason Force, and with this podcast, I hope to bring to light the world-renowned research that takes place here at CSU. By interviewing researchers, we can demonstrate how discovering answers to complex questions is a journey filled with unique stories. Throughout this podcast, I hope you'll be inspired by these stories of determination and innovation that propel us into the future. This is The State of Research. On this episode, I'm interviewing CSU's new research safety coordinator, Dr. Anthony Appleton, about his plans to develop a strong safety culture around CSU's drive for scientific progress. Anthony has experience advancing lab safety at Stanford University, and he joins us today to talk about the inspiration and deeper purpose behind his new position. Hi, good morning, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I am the new Research Safety Culture Coordinator for Colorado State University, and I began uh, January 2019. All right, that's an interesting title. So could you tell us just a little bit more about what exactly a Research Safety Coordinator does here at CSU? Sure. The important part is actually the culture part of my job. So when we think about research safety, a lot of times we will think about rules, regulations, uh, federal, state, local laws that we follow. And that's all well and good. Well, culture is actually how we approach the research. How do we think about the research and how do we mitigate our risks? Not necessarily because we are regulated by law, but because it's the right thing to do. Because the state of research has advanced to the point where we care beyond just the results. How does the research impact the researcher? How does it impact the university? How does it impact the community and the environment around it? All right, so you're here to change not just the protocols, but the actual culture surrounding research safety. Exactly, and it's how it's how we think about doing research. And a lot of times in research, we find that people are very good in what they do, they're excellent, but they might not know about opportunities that are outside their area. Mm-hmm. And so we've referred to these as, as silos. And these silos sometimes create an environment in which we stop interacting with each other. And so here at CSU, we have departments that are enablers and helpers of research. And we have departments that do the actual research itself. But not all the time do departments talk to each other. And not all the time do we communicate well with the enablers of our research here at CSU and our researchers. And so my job is to connect the dots. This is a pretty big university, right? So you've just got to go back and <laughs> forth between all the different departments. That's your job? That's correct. So my my schedule is typically full of meetings. I sit right. on and observe many different committees. I interact with all the major players, I've told people that my job covers the bench to the president. All right. And so not only do I enable researchers to do the research they want in as safe as possible as they can do it, but also inform administration as to what do our researchers need to do their research. Um, and that's where we usually have breakdowns, is that researchers are in their lab, Their PIs are traveling and giving talks and doing these great things, and they are incredibly busy with what they do, and they are tasked with a lot. And then administration looks around and says, oh, wow, we're doing great research because we have these publications and grants, Mm -hmm. and uh, we're getting recognition in the research community. And so everything seems to be going very well. Well, when you kind of stop and take a look at some of the research There are areas that have best practices that I wish we could translate to other areas. Hmm. To give you an example, if we look at the College of Engineering, 
Um, we have a building manager who has partnered with a lab manager to actually create a building safety team. This is a beautiful concept in how they can actually work together within their own building to enhance their safety. Another wonderful example of a best practice would be in our biosafety level three area. Um, Bob Alice has done a great job and has worked very hard building this team up, as well as building um, labs that are themselves training facilities. So we're not just taking an online training course and, and checking some boxes and taking a mm -hmm. quiz that never changes from year to year, but they actually come into a mock BSL-3 lab. And speaking of training, one of the great opportunities here at CSU is to advance into and beyond the 21st century in terms of research safety culture. Mm -hmm. We've got an excellent AR and VR lab, or what I would call a sandbox. We've got an, an actual division where we develop the use of AR and VR for various things. And so we can actually take a researcher who may be going to Kenya or Bora Bora or somewhere in Australia, it's very hard to train them to be safe in that environment mm -hmm. when we're here at CSU. Right. We just had a bunch of people go to Africa for um, part of another podcast we did here. So I can imagine that conditions are vastly different. Exactly. And so how can we leverage something like virtual reality to create these spaces where they're going and walk them through a series of events, almost like a modern version of Oregon Trail with virtual reality? Okay. Yeah. Right. You get to the river crossing. What do you do? And let someone make some choices. Another aspect of this, of course, would be with forestry. Could we help people to better understand how a fire will move? Can we help to train students how to put out a forest fire without actually putting them in the a forest fire, right? right? Um, and so we can use VR to put ourselves in areas we wouldn't normally want to be in to train. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing to start a small fire and say, please use the fire extinguisher to put it out. But it's another thing to say, all right, you're about to experience a chemical spill. This chemical <laughs> spill is highly toxic. In fact, it's lethal on contact. How do we handle this situation? You can imagine having a team of researchers, maybe five or six of them, in VR goggles. One of them has gone down because of this chemical exposure. What do the other four do in this situation? And so maybe the best way to look at safety culture is that we're preparing for things to happen. So in the event that something does go wrong, our researchers have this thought process that they've been trained in. They've looked deeply at risks, hazard analysis, as well as risk and hazard mitigation. We don't want our researchers to get into an environment and something happens and it's the first time they see it. What should they do? Mm -hmm. You know, we would love to be in a place where our researchers have seen so much through VR or AR that they are well developed in what they should do in response to that emergency. It's also great for training. Rather than sure, doing training yeah. training modules on those PowerPoint online, <laughs> right? You get an email that says you must complete your training and you go on there. And, and I'm sure that some people just don't take it seriously. But what if that training was in a lab using augmented reality where we would do yeah. hands-on training? I would take that seriously. <laughs> right? Or even students might be like, well, gosh, I wonder what it's like to work in a research lab. Okay, let me put you in some yeah. augmented reality. Let's try it out. Exactly. And we can show you how to do it. 
And when we think about why we want to be safe in lab, it's not necessarily about, well, I want to be safe because we have to comply with the regulations and the rules. Because they said so, that's why. Exactly. So this division at CSU has said we have to comply. Or this compliance office says in order to get your grant money, you have to comply. And so that is forced research safety. What I want is for people to see that there are things beyond compliance as to why we are safe. I'm safe in lab because I want to go home. I want to see my kids. Yeah. I want to see my wife, right? It's a compelling reason. <laughs> it is a very compelling reason. And so we're trying to shift the thought process, the culture, so that you say, well, I want to be safe because I don't want to release toxins into the environment and then catch a fish that is now affected by those toxins. Um, I want to be safe in lab because I appreciate my fellow researchers and I don't want them to get hurt. I want to be safe in lab because it's the right thing to do. And eventually, and hopefully, I can get the point across that having a positive, proactive safety culture is something that benefits our research. Well, in some areas, not wearing the right personal protective equipment or PPE can actually result in you having a failed experiment. Imagine you're doing DNA analysis and you're not wearing gloves and some of your DNA gets into this DNA analysis. It's ruined. It's totally ruined. Well, because you weren't wearing your PPE, your cost for that experiment has now doubled because you have to run it again. So some people might say, I want to be safe because I only have so much grant money and I want to make sure that we can get the research done. And that's a great way to look at it. We want people to say, you know, I want to be safe because it's the right thing to do. I want to be safe because I want my kids to experience the environment in as most a pristine way as possible. Or I want to be safe because I value everyone around me. And sometimes we let the research and the prestige and the publications get ahead of us mm -hmm. and our cost-benefit analysis of holding up some of that work kind of makes us take a back seat to other areas and we forgot that there are humans doing research, that there are people here doing research and that they are valued members. In many cases of having lab accidents or research incidents, we find that there were ways to prevent them. In fact, I have not come across a research incident that was a pure, unpreventable accident. And so in all the situations I've been in or have experienced, I can always look back and say, actually, we didn't follow a better way to do this. Well, what were we doing? Well, we were trying to get it done. Mm. You know, and that kind of speed sometimes hurts our ability to do research safely. But we need to have a place where we stop and we say, okay, this is the research we want to do. This is why this research is important. And if it is that important, then conducting it in a safe manner is just as important as the publication. And so that's what we want to change. That's the cultural change we're trying to take place. And to be very honest, it is not overnight. This is a very, very long process. And if you look at one area at CSU that developed their research safety culture to a point where 
it is an amazing thing to observe here at CSU is in radiation safety. And in radiation safety, if you look over their history, it took them years, if not over a decade, to get where they wanted to be in terms of radiation safety. And that was in in conjunction with federal, state, and local regulations, mm-hmm. laws, as well as the idea of, well, we would like to work safely. And so this is not an overnight change, and that's why the culture part is so important. Right. We're not looking to say, hey, on Monday, there's going to be a new rule. Mm-hmm. No. In fact, this whole time, notice I haven't talked about rules. I haven't talked about compliance. Because, in fact, that's not part of my job. An interesting thing to say is, well, what is not your job? My job's not rules. It's not compliance. It's not following the letter of the protocol. It's simply trying to figure out what is the best way to do research mm-hmm. in the safest way possible. So when you when you first showed up to CSU and you got to see the existing safety culture, mm-hmm. did you think to yourself, oh boy, I have got a lot of work to do? Or <laughs> <laughs> is that the reaction you had? Or how, how would you say the university stands right now? I, I would say actually mm-hmm. here at CSU, we've got a very interesting safety mm-hmm. culture because of what happens outside our labs. If you take a look walking across campus or in Old Town or over at Horsetooth Reservoir, you're going to see people riding bicycles and they're going to wear helmets and they're going to have headlights and taillights or they're going camping and they're going to bring the right gear with them and they understand what gear to bring. They're going to go whitewater rafting down the pooter and they understand, okay, I'm going to have a kayak, a paddle, I'm going to have some type of personal flotation device and I'm going to have a helmet that's good safety culture. We have amazing outdoor safety culture, right? We are prepared for mountain lions if necessary. <laughs> big um, story recently. Right, a one. big story here recently at CSU. Um, but what's interesting is that hazard analysis, that risk assessment of going camping for seven days, isn't necessarily coming into our research space. So we have the culture in another area at CSU So moving that thought process and really describing to people, well, what do you do before you go camping? Do you have a checklist? Do you, do people know that you're going camping and you're going to be at these locations and you're going to return at a certain time so that if you're not there, they might send out help. Take that mentality and translate it to doing scientific research. And so I feel CSU is actually in one of the better places in regards to its safety culture because of the safety culture this town already exudes. If you think about outdoor safety, we have that. But now it's moving those concepts into our research space. It's not changing how people think, but it's changing how they apply their thought process to what they do for fun in Northern Colorado, to what they do inside their research labs. So ideally that will be a whole lot easier than, say, starting from scratch. At least we've got that culture that exists mm-hmm. somewhere. Right. So uh, tell me a little bit more about your background, just in general. You mentioned you've worked at other uh, universities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my background is pretty diverse. I got my undergraduate degree in chemistry and marine sciences at University of Miami. And I thought that I was going to be a medicine man and someone was going to throw me out of a plane at you know 10,000 feet and leave me in a 
a jungle in some unknown location to discover <laughs> the next anti-cancer um, drug. And that didn't really pan out. And I ended up at Georgia Tech getting my PhD where I found my love of chemical synthesis. I am a lab rat. I think the lab is one of the greatest places in the world. It's somewhere to create. And when you see an artist create a painting, that's something that other people can experience. They can see it. Um, but when we're in the lab and I create a new molecule that no one's ever seen, that's a rush unlike anything else I've ever experienced. When I finished at Georgia Tech, I wanted to do my postdoc with one very specific person. Her name's Janam Bao. And she is at Stanford working on the applications of organic electronic materials uh, and integrating them into devices. So I started work on developing materials, synthesizing materials for things such as electronic skin. So if you have a prosthesis, prosthesis has no ability to feel, there's no loop feedback response system. We developed uh, a transistor and the material that would allow you to integrate the ability to feel into a prosthesis. And so when I was doing all of this research, and it is great, and it is fun, I started noticing that we were doing things in a way that negatively impacted the health of our workers, of mm. my fellow researchers. And it all started at Georgia Tech one day when I got into my first serious lab accident when I put a hollow glass tube through one of my fingers. Oh, wow. And at that point, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so I'm administering my own first aid. It was amazing. I got a core sample out of my finger. So to a scientist, you're like, oh, wow, that's what it looks like. My gosh. Um, <laughs> but at this point, it's okay, stop the bleeding. Right. But what's next? And I was lucky enough to form relationships with building managers known as building proctors here at CSU, um, as well as admins and secretaries, such that I knew who to go ask who had been at Georgia Tech for the longest. So I go and I see her, and her name's Marsha. I said, Marsha, I've been injured. What do I do? Marsha didn't work for our group. I had known her because I had passed through the hallways and I'd asked other questions, but I was interacting outside my research space outside my research group and Marsha told me exactly what to do and I took care of that injury myself went to workman's comp and filled out all the paperwork and she was super helpful she enabled me to go through this process later on that evening in fact we had an accident at our lab party so this is the same day that I cored my finger and go to a lab party where there's a grill and someone has sprayed lighter fluid um, all over the hot coals and asked if someone had a lighter to relight it. And I had found a lighter. I said, well, I'll relight it. It's no big deal. But they had not communicated that they sprayed lighter fluid mm. all over these warm coals. Oh, no. <laughs> of course, the grill blows up. It takes with it my beard and my hair. So I had bangs for three to four months. Um, this was just a bad day. It was a horrible <laughs> day in Atlanta for me. And so at that point, I run upstairs. I realize I've got first-degree burns. I've lost some hair. I rinse everything off. I clean up, and I go to put something cold on, on my arms because it is hot, you know, mm. and I'm feeling the burn. 
And uh, at the time, I worked for a boss who did not keep ice at his house, but kept butter frozen in his freezer. So I come down from his little apartment, and I have saran wrap frozen butter on my arms to oh, finish <laughs> to finish grilling, make sure the grill is safe. And as I come down, my boss says, wow, you have injured yourself in lab. You figured out how to fill out all the paperwork. And now you've just blown yourself up at a lab party and administered your own first aid and have come back down to finish grilling. <laughs> I said, well, well, yes, the steaks look really good tonight. And I, and I was not going to miss this. When your PI goes out and spends a couple hundred dollars on steaks for a group you know, dinner, you're definitely going to enjoy it as a grad student. And he said, well, you're the new safety chief. And that's how I got started in safety was two lab accidents nearly back-to-back -back in the same day, um, one being an accident within a research lab and one being a highly volatile substance being put on a warm material. Even though it was cooking, mm. you know, it is still a lab to me. I love to cook. Um, but that's how it got started. And so I was essentially voluntold mm -hmm. into this idea of lab safety. And so I start working on it at Georgia Tech, and I find myself building these relationships with people who monitor the hoods, who do maintenance on our research labs, who pick up our hazardous waste. So from people uh, at CSU, kind of like you have environmental health services known as EHS, you have people in facilities that would monitor the functioning of equipment. You have people who help deliver things on campus. I developed these relationships because I was interested in safety, and it became very apparent to me that research safety is not one person, the researcher. Research safety is the community that is involved in research. There are no bad guys. There's no one out there saying, I'm going to do this research with the intention of hurting people. And, no, surely not. Right? And I don't care about grad students or my workers. No, that doesn't exist. But in the way that we have valued science and academia over generations has led us to not necessarily valuing things in the best way. Our cost-benefit analysis is a little bit out of whack. But here at CSU, like I said, you have amazing environmental culture. Mm -hmm. You have amazing environmental stewardship. Your principles of community, that's the culture at CSU. It's not a rule. No one mandates you will go enjoy Horsetooth Reservoir this weekend. No, your culture dictates we like to do this. We want to do this. And if I'm going to go do this, I got to make sure I have X, Y, and Z. And that's what I want to translate into the lab. So on that note, that's all the time we've got today. But I do wish you the best of luck. I hope you can build a culture here at CSU that doesn't just dictate that people follow the rules, but that makes them want to. Exactly right. Mm. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in. I certainly appreciated Anthony's insight about the goals and rationale behind research safety culture, and I hope you did as well. Until next time on The State of Research.